1 Kings chapter 18, we're looking at verses 41 through 46. We come back to 1 Kings after a few weeks of being away, so I hope that you haven't totally forgotten what we've been doing in this study on Elijah the prophet and kind of the ministry surrounding his life and times. Um, but tonight will hopefully serve as a refresher if you have forgotten a little bit. Uh, we are picking up on this part of the narrative that comes right after the clash, the showdown between Elijah and the priest of Baal. And this is what happens in the immediate aftermath. So if you would follow along with me as I read for us from God's word. Verse 41 starts like this. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And the servant went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can be seated. Hey, and... Let me say hello to you if we haven't met yet. I'm Josh. I pastor along with Pastor Brian. Glad you're here tonight. And Brian, you had a lot of announcements on your plate today, man. So great job getting through all of that. Um, but keep in mind the link tree is the place where you have any question on any details. We try to put a very thorough announcement about everything going on in the church there. So check that out. So um, if we haven't met before, you're about to learn a lot more about me because about to tell you a story about my family, and not my immediate family from the cultured part of Georgia, but my extended family from South Georgia. You think I'm a redneck where I'm from? South Georgia is crazy, y'all. I mean, and listen, I know probably some of you guys are like, oh, you can't say that. If you're from South Georgia, you know. You're like, yeah, yeah, it is crazy. You're not offended. It is a wild spot, and my mom tells this story about the first time that she took my dad to visit her extended relatives in South Georgia. We're talking about second and third cousins, people that I've actually never met or never met in my life. And so my dad, he grew up in this upper middle class family in the suburbs of Chicago, very bougie upbringing, and he's being taken to South Georgia for the first time to meet people like Uncle Havis and Uncle Bud and Aunt Maud. And it's a lot. It's a bit overwhelming for him. And I think sort of the straw that broke the camel's back is when they had gone to see Uncle Pete and Aunt Juanita, people that I never met before in my life, but apparently my mom said that her grandmother 
calls over and says, Pete and Juanita, I'm bringing Jeff and Lisa to come see you. And they told her, no, don't come. We are not prepared for that. But Grandma Pat took him anyways. They knock on the door, and Uncle Pete opens up in just his boxers and nothing else on. Aunt Juanita didn't have her wig on that morning. It was just, it was a mess. And they never got changed or ready. They just said, okay, I guess you get to meet us and we get to talk uh, without any pretense at all. But it was shocking for my dad, so much so that he, he wanted to get out of there as quick as possible. So my mom says that what's happening is he does that thing like, oh, we got to go. And they're still trying to talk, but he's like walking away as they're talking like, bye, see ya, talk to you soon. And he's not paying attention, and he walks straight off their elevated deck, which was 10 feet off the ground. And in the air, instead of panicking and flailing, his little legs just kept going. Just like this, perfect form. So that when he hit the ground, he didn't crash. He just was in full stride already, and he just took off running. And he kept running for a long ways. And Uncle Pete and his boxers and his white tank top looks over to my mom and says, Binky, that's her nickname, Binky, that boy of yours sure can run. <laughs> and apparently in my family tradition, that was the moment where my mom realized she loved my dad. That was her soulmate when she saw him run off the deck. So, what does this have to do with 1 Kings chapter 18? Hardly anything, guys. But it coordinates with the detail about this text that fascinated me the most when I read it this week. Because as graceful and beautiful and as incredible as my father's run off the deck was, it doesn't hold a candle to the run that the prophet Elijah did at the very end of this text. You might not have even noticed it. Just one verse, the last verse we read, and for many it's just a throwaway detail that they blitz right past. But look at this. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, this is verse 46, and he gathered up his garment and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab's in a chariot. So Elijah, he, he lifts up his garment, which I take to mean he lifts his robe a little bit, because he didn't want to trip over his robe. So he's, he's sort of girding up the hem of his robe. He's running in a torrential downfall, mind you, through the mud, through the rain, 17 miles. That's the distance from Mount Carmel, where he was, to the gates of the city of Jezreel. He ran all that way through the rain, through the mud, and he overtakes Ahab in his chariot. Maybe the chariot was bogged down in mud. I don't know. Maybe it had to go slower than usual. But this crazed prophet just runs a marathon so fast that he's just like, see you, Ahab, I'll see you at the city. That's weird, right? This, these are the kind of details in the Bible I love because I read this text and I'm like, I want to know about that. And, not, and the reason I want to know about it is because it wasn't that just, it wasn't that Elijah was an eccentric who really loved running. The hand of the Lord was upon him to do this. It was God's power and his sovereign moving that made this bizarre scene happen. What is he doing? Why? 
Now, I learned this week that I might be one of the few people that is asking that question, why? Because some of the resources I've been leaning on in this study don't really talk about this too much. They just sort of breeze right by this detail. Maybe they don't have a, you know, a family story about their father walking off a deck and, and hitting the ground at full speed and running like I do, so they don't care about it quite as much. But I felt like there had to be something significant going on and this little detail, and upon further study and digging a little bit deeper, not only did I sort of see what began to kind of make sense of this picture, I began to see that there is an important, powerful biblical truth that's trying to be communicated to you here. And it's an important truth that I'm going to save for the end of the sermon today. Sorry. Joy, the bait and switch, you know, gets them every time. Yeah. I'm going to save it for the end because there's some things that we need to talk about before we get to that specific spot. Mostly we need to talk about this other posture, this other action that we see the prophet Elijah taking. That looks a lot different from the run that it, you know, concludes this text. But is very significant and it's this posture of him kneeling, his face towards the ground, his head humbly bowed. Before the Lord. It's in verse 42. It says, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. What do you think is happening there? What is he doing? Oh, <laughs> don't look at the slide. He's praying. At least we are 99% sure. Granted, the text doesn't explicitly say, that he's praying, but both this posture of bowing his head down towards the ground, but then also the fact that we've seen a pattern in Elijah's life, that every time there's this critical crossroads, he, he seeks the Lord in prayer. That makes it us very, very certain that that's what's happening when he bows his head between his knees, that he's seeking the Lord's face, and in particular, he's seeking the Lord to bring rain. Remember, it hadn't rained in the land for three plus years. So Elijah is calling out to God to bring rain upon the land and upon the people. So before we talk about the run, this epic run that concludes the text, we're going to talk about the prayer. And I have two things that I want to point out for us today. I could have seven things. There's a lot to say in this, but we're going to limit ourselves just to two for the sake of time and for the sake of talking about the run later on. Here, here are the two main takeaways from this prayer that I want you to kind of latch onto. One, when Elijah prays in this moment, what he's doing is acknowledging that he doesn't have the power in himself to affect anything, to change anything, to make anything happen. Like, in this specific context, the prayer is that the Lord would bring rain. And what Elijah's doing is saying, I can't make it rain. Only God can. Now, I, I know that seems like a very dumb, obvious point, And one that probably doesn't even worth mentioning. But here's, here's why it's so important to say this and to just really put our finger on it. When... When we do things like we're doing at church right now, where we do like a biographical study of a person in the Bible. So this sermon series is, we're talking about Elijah, the prophet, the life and times of Elijah. 
But what happens is that we can get tunnel vision on the man, on the person, on the historical figure, and we begin to think that all the narratives we're reading about are about them and how bold they are and how courageous they are and how faithful they are and how they did these incredible feats. And sometimes just for shorthand, even very innocently, we'll say things like, remember the time that Elijah called down fire from heaven? Or remember when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal? Or when Elijah had mercy on the widow of Zarephath? All, all stories that we've read about prior to this. And we say, Elijah did it. Elijah accomplished it. Elijah made it happen. And it's not true. He didn't do any of that. God did. God, the faithful covenant-keeping, merciful God who delights in using ordinary people like Elijah to do mighty acts in history for his people and for his glory. Remember the very first sermon we did when we started this study. We looked at this, this, this verse from the book of James where James tells us, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He's like you and I. He trusts the Lord, and God does mighty things through him. But Elijah is not the one that has the power in himself, nor does any human being for that matter. So this is why we see him at all these pivotal moments in his life. Whenever he's, he, he's at this crossroads, he, he, he bows his head in prayer because he's saying, Lord, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. I don't have the power or control to make it happen. And it struck me yesterday that perhaps the reason that we, and I'm going to speak generally here, the reason that we struggle so much to be faithful in prayer is not because we're too busy or not because we're too disorganized or we lack the focus that it requires. That's usually what we say, right? Like, oh, I'm struggling in prayer. It's just I got so much going on or it's so hard for me to focus. That's not the key reason. The main reason we struggle in prayer is because deep down we've convinced ourselves that we have more power and more control than we actually do. We don't pray because we think that we can affect the change. We think that we can make it happen. But if we really saw that it's only God that can make things happen in this world, we would be a people fervent in prayer. Prayer happens when we humbly realize that without him, it's not going to go. So the first observation, Elijah humbles himself in prayer because he doesn't have the power in himself. But here's the second observation, and it's more about the circumstance around it. This prayer of Elijah doesn't look like the previous prayers that we've seen him. Or I'll say it like this, the answer to prayer doesn't look like the previous answers that we've seen. So I know it's been a few weeks, but think back of what happened right before this. Just verses before this. Elijah is in this showdown with the prophets of Baal. They shout out to their God and they get no answer. And then Elijah, by contrast, utters this one simple prayer. And immediately the Lord answers by opening the heavens and a pillar of fire coming and consuming the altar. It happened like that. Elijah prays, God hears, it's done. But now, just mere verses later, like two verses later, 
and what the text sort of suggests to us might be just a matter of hours on the same day. The same Elijah who just prayed and had the Lord answer immediately goes up to Mount Carmel hours later and he prays again, this time that the Lord would bring rain. Mind you, something that God's already promised he's going to do. But instead of immediate answer, there's nothing at first. Nothing changes. No clouds on the horizon. No rain coming. Elijah is called to wait. And he waits for quite a while. You know, it's the same day, but I think the text, when it's telling us that he keeps sending his servant back and forth, is just trying to reiterate the fact that this was a significant, long period of waiting for Elijah. Maybe he thought when he sent his servant, first and foremost, that the guy's going to come back and be like, I see a huge thundercloud on the horizon and lightning bolts and I feel the rain coming already. But no, the servant didn't see anything. And he didn't see anything the second time he went, or the third time he went, or the fourth time, and on and on and on. It was only on the seventh time that the servant comes back, and he doesn't see some torrential storm. Instead, he sees just the slightest hint of something on the horizon. A small wisp of cloud. Maybe, maybe my eyes are tricking me. Maybe it's something, but I, I think I see a cloud forming, no bigger than a man's fist. God was starting to move. But it didn't happen immediately like Elijah had experienced before. It happened only after a serious wait and this call to patiently trust and wait upon the Lord. Why did God make him wait here? I don't know, actually. I don't think anybody does with confidence. We could speculate. I was telling the folks up in paradise this morning that there was an earlier draft of the sermon where I did throw out some speculative ideas of why God might have had Elijah wait. But I really t- sort of trimmed that away yesterday as I was preparing because I was like, you know, I think the main thing for God's people to see is just the, the fact that this happened this way. And that in the same afternoon, the same guy, Elijah, who has the same measure of faith, the same trust in God, he prays and yet he is called to wait in one situation and in the other situation God answers immediately. I think you need to see that. And I think you need to have it encourage your heart in prayer so that when you are in situations where you feel like you are calling out to the Lord and he's not answering. Or he's not showing up in the way that you feel like he promised. And that you're just speaking to yourself. It's not that you're doing it wrong. It's not that you've messed up the formula. Because here's the thing, prayer isn't a formula. It's not something where you put the same inputs in and always get the same output. I feel like I just muted myself in a few minutes. It's relationships. It's conversation with God. It's pouring out our hearts to him and the desires and the things that we long for, knowing that he's hearing those things, but in his sovereign wisdom and timing, it's taking into account your good, the good of the world, and his glory, and that you can trust that if he's calling on you to wait, you will not be disappointed. In the same day, prophet Elijah has a very different experience of how God answers prayer. I want you to remember that. 
All right. So those are our two observations on prayer. Let's talk about the run now. What we started with. The run off the deck into this amazing run of Elijah through the mud, through the rain, 17 miles, past a chariot, all the way to the gates of Jezreel. What is going on here? Now, let's just name it. It's weird. It's a really bizarre detail. And taken at face value, it remains a very bizarre detail. But what I want to invite you to do is something that I feel like was a turning point for me as I'm reading this text this week. And that is, there were some scholars that were inviting us to look at this, not only with what really happened, because this really did happen historically, but also symbolically what it stood for. What is going on here when the prophet of the Lord overtakes the chariot of the king is that we have the symbol of God's authority and God's word overtaking the symbol of human authority and human decision making. And for that brief moment in time, it is the symbol of God's word that is leading humans, not the other way around. It's God's authority and God's word that should be leading people's lives. And that's symbolically what you see with this run that takes place. So the man in the chariot is King Ahab. He is literally the highest authority in the land. But as a king of Israel, he's more than that. He's a symbol of the people as a whole. And he's representative of the people. That's how it worked, that the king was the representative head. So his decisions, his actions, his desires and ambitions, they all had ramifications for the whole people because he represented them before God. And as you know, if you've been tracking along with us, King Ahab had made a mess of that for most of his life and his tenure as king. He had been driven by his own Lust for power, lust for control, lust for women, lust for selfish ambition and desire. He had let that lead him all throughout his kingly reign. And it had led the people into grave danger and disaster. Now Elijah, on the other hand, is a prophet. And as a prophet, his job is similar to me as a preacher to encourage the people with God's promises, to call people to repentance and belief. But in Old Testament Israel, the prophet was more than that. They symbolically stood for God's voice, God's authority, and God's leading. Especially in this day, considering that Elijah is the only connection that the northern kingdom has with God's word. This had been forgotten or discarded or destroyed, the written word of God. And no other prophets were active in the land at the time. So it's the prophet Elijah and him alone is the one that's speaking to people the promises of God. Speaking his covenants. Speaking his law. He is the representative, the symbol of God's word and God's authority. So let's come back to the scene again. When we see the prophet of the Lord, that symbol of God's word and authority running so fast that it overtakes the chariots. What we're seeing is things as they should be, with God's word leading the way, instead of human sin and selfishness and wisdom leading the way. 
It's King Ahab finally being led by what God has said and what God has promised as opposed to letting his own heart and whims lead the way. For all his life, King Ahab has been led by anything and everything but God. But in this one moment, he's seeing the picture of how it should be. God's authority out in front leading the way home. It's a momentary picture. Most likely, after they arrived at the city gates, they went their separate ways. Our runner, Elijah, probably went and got a Gatorade or something. He's probably tired. Come on, that was funnier than that, guys. (laughs) It's a rough night tonight. The king in his chariot, he probably went on to his palace, to his throne room to his wife Jezebel. And even though the scene was just momentary, though Ahab would have had it just tattooed on his brain, this picture of the prophet, God's authority, God's word leading the way. And I wonder if he would have realized that it wasn't just a flash in the pan, but what God was doing was actually an invitation. God was showing him not only the way that it should be, but the way that it could be in Israel. If he was willing to repent, if he was willing to turn his life in such a way where God's word and authority would guide the kingdom and not his own heart, then blessing would be poured out upon them. Revival, restoration and reconciliation, all of that if he just saw that picture of the prophet leading the way and turned from his sin. But as we'll see in coming weeks, if Ahab saw that invitation, if he understood what was being communicated, then he rejected it. And we're going to see that far from putting the word of the Lord as the primary lead in his life, he went back to the old ways of just being led around by anything and everything but God. He didn't accept this invitation to make this scene true in his life. But you can. You're seeing the same thing that he did that day. As we read this bizarre detail about the running prophet overtaking the chariot, you are seeing the same picture of what things should be and can be with God's word, his authority leading your life, not your own whims and desires that change from day to day. Not your own cultural gods that we bow down to and that we make their opinion the most uh, significant of anything else. Whatever social media feed that you're connected to and the opinions that you're getting there. Whatever politician you like, whether it's on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle. All of them are telling you, I will lead you. I will show you what's right. I'll show you what's wrong. I'll show you what's good. I'll show you what's successful. I'll show you what's the abundant life. And all of it is contrary to what God has said in his word and his gospel. So I ask you. Who are you going to let lead the way in your life? Will it be his word, his wisdom, his grace in the gospel? Or will it be anything but him? You've seen the picture, that momentary scene 
of the prophet running past the king's chariot. And I hope that as funny as that is, as strange as it is, even if you have to marry it together with my dad walking off the porch, you'll remember it. And in those moments where you find yourself leading your way into the muck and the mire, you say, God should be leading here, not the other way around. That's what I think this run is about. And by God's grace, he'll give us the courage and boldness as a people to be led by him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, I'll pray that last thing I just said. You would give us the courage to be people that are led purely and only by you. And God, give us the wisdom to not delude ourselves into thinking that we're doing that when the reality is we're just following human traditions and commands and whims. How much of our opinion, our worldview, our lifestyle, our politics are shaped by things maybe that we think are from the Bible, but if we really dug in in prayer and study, we'd see that your word is calling us to something different, something better, something holy. Give us courage, give us wisdom, and let us be a people who don't take the lead in our life, but follow you. It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.